Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, we come today to the great celebration of Trinity Sunday. It's been called the preacher's nightmare, as you know. How do you preach about the Trinity? I think it shouldn't be the preacher's nightmare. I think it should be the preacher's great opportunity because I always tell our students here that every Sunday is Trinity Sunday. See, here's a peculiar thing about the Trinity. At one and the same time, the Trinity is the most arcane and extraordinary of Christian doctrines and the most ordinary. It's simultaneously the most inaccessible of doctrines and the most obvious. Now, what do I mean? Well, on the one hand, there is a highly developed technical language regarding this great mystery. I've been teaching the Trinity out here for 20 years. Terms like person, imminent relation, circumcession, procession, etc., etc. The finest minds in the church, from Origen and Gregory of Nyssa to Augustine and Anselm to Thomas Aquinas and John Henry Newman, have wrestled with the meaning of this great mysterious dogma. But on the other hand, the most ordinary Catholic simply and regularly invokes the Trinity every time he crosses himself, commencing prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How many times do you do that? Well, every time we pray formally, we do. I imagine any time you pray informally, you do. What you're doing is putting yourself within the dynamic of the Trinity. Moreover, every single baptized person listening to me, as Catholic or Protestant, anyone baptized, has been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed by the Trinity, brought into the dynamics of the Trinity, every single baptized person. And so, yeah, in one sense, it's a very technical, abstract thing that only a few theologians fuss about. But on the other hand, it's the most ordinary sign of the Christian life. So, how do we get at this peculiar teaching? Well, can I suggest that we follow the readings for today, which are really good. We'll follow the sort of logic implied in the readings. Our first reading, maybe a bit surprisingly, is taken from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Moses is speaking to the people as they're about to enter the promised land. Remember, he won't go with them, but they're about to enter. And he reminds them of the glories of God. Now listen to Moses as he speaks in our reading today. Did anything so great ever happen before? Was it ever heard of? Did any go venture to take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? What's he talking about here? Well, everybody in the ancient world believed in, in God or the gods in some sacred dimension. What made Israel unique was their belief 
that the one God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of all creation, listen, had specifically chosen them as his special people. Was it ever heard of, Moses says, for a God to venture forth and take a nation for himself? Now, what becomes clear in the course of the Old Testament is this choosing has nothing to do with privilege, but rather with mission. Israel was chosen by the one God in order to become the vehicle by which the whole world would be gathered unto God. There's the distinctiveness of biblical religion. We have a God who speaks, a God who acts and chooses a particular people. Through his mighty acts of liberation in Egypt and Babylon, through his gift of the Torah, through the sending of the prophets, through the establishment of the temple in Jerusalem, through the cutting of covenant after covenant, the God of Israel sought to draw Israel into communion with him. Again, so that prophecy, covenant, temple, and Torah might be universalized and all nations might come to worship the true God. God is a great gathering force. That's what we learn now from the first reading. God's a great gathering force. He speaks and acts so as to draw the world to himself. Now, take the next step. All of this came to a climax in the life and teaching and dying and rising of a young rabbi from Nazareth called Yeshua. Was he a purveyor of the Torah? Yes, but so much more, because he claimed authority over the Torah itself. You've heard it said in the Torah, but I say. He was the Torah par excellence, Was he a prophet? Well, sure, and he claimed that title, but he was so much more because he claimed to be not just one more bearer of the truth, but he claimed to be the prophetic truth itself. Listen, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. You couldn't imagine Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, any of them saying that. Was this Yeshua from Nazareth a lover of the temple? Well, yes, of course he was. He went up to the temple often to pray. But he was so much more than that because he claimed to be himself the new temple. You have a greater than the temple here, he says, referring to himself. And at the climax of his life, I will tear this place down and in three days rebuild it referring to the temple of his body. Okay, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? Well, what became clear to the first Christian believers, especially in light of the resurrection, is that this Yeshua, this Jesus, who was sent by the God of Israel, also spoke and acted in the very person of the God of Israel. He was Son of God, but in an absolutely unique sense. For he was, 
as the New Testament puts it, the perfect reflection of the Father's being. Now, here's the point. Accordingly, he was the limit case, the means by which the Father would gather the whole world to himself. We saw through prophecy, temple, law, covenant, the God of Israel would draw the world to himself. Well, now we see Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those. He's the definitive means by which God will draw the world to himself. They saw, now in light of the dying and rising of Jesus, that the Father had sent this Son to the very limits of God-forsakenness, into sickness, sin, into death itself in order to draw everybody into the dynamics of the divine life. Now, with all that in mind, listen to a line from our second reading. Paul says, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption through whom we cry, Abba, Father. There it is, everybody. If Yeshua, Jesus, is the Son, then we who are grafted onto him are sons and daughters in the Son. There's the Christian faith. There's the meaning of baptism. When I said every one of you is baptized into the dynamics of the Trinity, that's what I mean. You become grafted onto the Son, and therefore a son or daughter in the Son. Okay, now with all that, we're ready to look at the Gospel, taken from the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. The risen and glorified Lord speaks to the new Israel of the church. Listen to him now. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. First of all, that's not an utterance of an ordinary prophet. Again, Jeremiah, Moses, Ezekiel would never have said that. This is the very word of the Father speaking, the exact replica of the Father's being. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then listen to what he tells them. So go forth and do the work of gathering in. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There it is. What's the church's mission? It's the mission of the Son, which is to gather all people now into the love that connects the Father and the Son. That's the Holy Spirit. How all this fits together theoretically is indeed a fascinating question when we talk about the inner life of God. But we should never allow the arcane language of theology to obscure the revolutionary meaning of the Trinity as a summons to mission, as a call to action. The Son saying to all of us who are sons and daughters in him, you now go and do the work that was given to me to gather the whole world into the dynamics of the divine life. Here's the last image in the last couple of minutes I have, Karl Barth, the great Protestant theologian, said, 
The Trinity is a function of the biblical principle Deus Dixit. That means God has spoken. God has spoken. That's an extraordinary claim that we make. You know, the force in Star Wars doesn't speak, or the deist God of the 18th century philosophers doesn't speak. The biblical God speaks. That means within God there's a speaker. We call him the Father. But if there's a speaker, there has to be a word spoken. And indeed, covenant law, prophecy, all of that are examples of words that the speaker speaks. But, but in Yeshua, he speaks his definitive word. Jesus is the word spoken. There's the Son. And thirdly, Karl Barth says, there has to be an interpreter of the word. It's true, isn't it? If you tell a little kid a story, you speak the story, but the story isn't clear to the kid until someone interprets it for him. Who's the Holy Spirit but the divine interpreter who now allows us to understand the word spoken? I would say as a Catholic, that's the Holy Spirit operating up and down the centuries through theologians and popes and teachers, teaching us the meaning of the word. Friends, allow all this to kind of wash over you today on Trinity Sunday. The Trinity as an invitation into the dynamics of the divine life. The Trinity as a summons to mission and action. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.